Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. I want the dog to honor his nose and go where the where that target odor is, and that's that's that nose. That's and that's the part. You got dogs that love to use the nose too much in a hunting environment. Well, that dog might make a great bond dog. Why does it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side -side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. No two hunters approach the field the exact same way. That's why it's nice to have a vest that can be completely customized to fit your specific needs. Final Rise creates high-functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort and balance that assists you chasing wild birds in wild places. The vest's unique lumbar pad and weight-bearing waist belt makes it too easy to keep going to the next horizon. Add in any of the awesome and functional accessories for the vest along with their new tactical apparel and you'll be outfitted with a complete setup that was proudly sourced and sewn right here in the USA. Check out FinalRise.com to order yours today. Alright everybody, welcome back to another week of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this week is Stacy West of AKC. Stacy, how you doing? Doing good, Nick. How about yourself? Uh, living the dream as always. I can't complain. Uh, so we're, we're here today. We're going to kind of break down anything and everything to do with the AKC Patriotic Puppy Program and also get into how that type of training and preparing young dogs to become bomb detection dogs, uh, how that kind of correlates and overlaps with, with the hunting dogs that we know and love and, and mainly discuss on this podcast. But before we dive into all that fun stuff, we need to know a little bit more about you. You know, what what makes Stacy tick? What got you in the gun dog world? And kind of give us a, a brief overview of, of your experience and history. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk today. Uh, so my my background's pretty um, pretty unusual, to be honest with you, to get to where I'm at. I, I bought a puppy when I was in, in grad school. And and after a year of, of having time to train while I was in school, Brought that dog home for a hunting, uh, hunting trip down to hunt the duck cabin. And uh, by the end of the season, I had folks asking if I'd train a dog for them. And so literally one turned into two, two, two into four, four into eight. And, <laughs> and when I finished my master's degree, believe it or not, I actually uh, never used it. I went straight in as a professional dog trainer. And so 
um, spent probably 15 years training gun dogs and hunt tests, you know, super retriever series, hunt tests, field trials, played pretty much every game there was. And uh, then I had a, a, a son born and I'm like, OK, it's time to get off the road. I don't want to be chasing ribbons all over the country and ended up working on a Marine Corps contract and got in the working dog side using the same tools that we had for our retrievers. You know, it was all whistle and hand signals. They were just looking for bombs instead of birds. And so that started my transition over as a working dog trainer. And, and uh, you know, instead of getting off the road, I spent six months in Afghanistan <laughs> on, on that contract. So go figure. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those deals that you, you just never know what, when you make a left turn, whether that's going to be a road that takes you a long way. And that's that's kind of what started the the working dog side for me. And, and it's a nice fit because I, I'm able to, to use a lot of the sporting breeds and the training and background in, in our working dog side, just, and it correlates real well with our, our, our field trial and hunt test dogs. Yeah. So I need to, obviously there's a lot to unpack there. I need to know a little bit more because it's, I love talking to guys with stories such as yourself to where they just kind of get pushed or nudged into the dog training world. It's not so much that they are chasing it or trying to attain it or anything, but you go out, your dogs kind of showcase and, and, make uh good first impressions with a lot of people to where they're saying all right you, you're doing something different you need to continue on down that path what were what was your dog doing different was it just very obedient and, and just a, a joy to hunt with you know kind of walk me through what captured the other guy's attention while you're out hunting with them i think the biggest thing with that first dog was you know at a year old she was she was the oldest dog at the at the hunting camp that year and that was because all the old dogs had had either gotten too old to hunt that year or uh we actually had one that was that died in his pen during the summer uh, a summer thunderstorm mm. um you know lightning struck the the a pole next to the pen it jumped to the to the chain link and and uh and we're down now we're down our, our best dog is gone and so that one-year-old got every rep uh every opportunity and we had done enough of the right things to have her prepared so um, she just went down there and and just did a great job. And um, and literally a phone call came two weeks after the season and said, will you pick a puppy for me and train one for next year? And that puppy turned out, I mean, I hunted him as a seven-month-old puppy. And uh, man, what a, a, an incredible dog. I think he picked up his 3,000th bird before uh, before he was three years old, hunting with a, a guide. And uh, so, yeah, it's it just literally – it was putting the time into basics. Um, I think that's the biggest thing as dog trainers. We, we want to jump ahead to all the fun stuff, but the, it's those basics, you know, she had good obedience. She, she was force fit. She, she, you know, understood the collar. Uh, she was a pretty good marking dog. Uh, not the greatest pedigree in the world, but in intelligent beyond intelligence. I mean, she literally made me a better dog trainer. Uh, because if the book said 80% of the dogs are going to do one thing, this one did something different. <laughs> and that's really what pushed me to, to, you know, I always had to stop and think about, okay, this is what I'm planning to do today. What's she going to do different? <laughs> and, and that was, you know, big chocolate female, you know, she was, she was, you know, the, the alpha dog or tried to be the alpha dog around the house. And uh, so we, we constantly had to spend a lot of time, um, just developing a relationship that that was built. Sometimes it was built around trust. Sometimes it was built around, okay, 
that's not the right thing to do. We're going to do it my way instead. It, it, it sounds like she's kind of on par with all the other great dogs that catch other people's attention to where, you know, it's kind of like they have a mind of their own sometimes. And that's where the foundation and obedience comes into play because it's, it's like the really good dogs, they're going to be cooperate with you nine times out of 10, but it's always that one time that it's just, you, you have to have that foundation to fall back on and just be like, I don't know what's in your head today, but you need to get it out of your system and come back down to earth. Well, I, I think the biggest thing with that one was she was fearless. Um, and so she didn't mind taking on anything new. Uh, but sometimes she would like, all right, that's what you wanted me to do. Let me think of a better way to do what you <laughs> want me to do. Um, and sometimes it will, it worked out and sometimes it's like, all right, we just got to go work on that. But, uh, but she showed up every day. I mean, that was the beauty of, it. she showed up every day in training and, and, uh, and even better, she was, you know, she produced arguably the best dog I'll ever train. Um, that was Rankin's mom. And so, you know, when we're talking super retriever series, you know, Rankin was one of the dogs early on in that game that, that stood out for years. Um, and that was, that was her mom, you know, and she got kind of the best of both worlds. She got the, the, I could take anything you got, you know, attitude today, uh, with the sensitive nature of her dad so that, you know, she'd lick her lips on an, you know, uh, the highest level e-collar correction. And that was the only physical response you got. Um, but you could holler at another dog and she'd pin her ears back. Like, I don't know what I did wrong, but I'll never do it again. <laughs> and so, you know, so I got, that was the beauty of having her mom be that first dog was, you know, a lot of people think that was a dog of a lifetime. The reality was she produced a dog of a lifetime. And, and uh, you know, so that's, that's what got me started in, in that game was a, was a really tough chocolate female that uh, didn't have a great pedigree, but pro arguably was one of the best hunting dogs I've ever, ever put my hands on. So, you know, it's not very often that we have, uh, we don't have very many retriever guys on this podcast. Mostly it's versatile pointing dogs, so on and so forth. A uh, few of y'all creep in from time to time. So <laughs> anytime I do, I, I really want to pick your brains on it because it's a world I'm not really that familiar with. Uh, when you're talking about, you said that you've done all the games, all the trials, the Super super Retriever Series, the AKC, all that stuff. What What's the main one that kind of sticks in your head to where, you know, it's just like, okay, that's that's my favorite or, or maybe the most attainable or most useful kind of, is there one that stands out above all the rest that you you personally just enjoyed more than the others? So so I, I probably really enjoyed as a dog handler, um, the the either the Super Retriever Series or the, the AKC Field Trials. I like the competition. Um, and it's not necessarily you like the competition because you love the win. The competition is what makes you a better dog trainer because you're going to find holes in your program when you're competing against other dogs. And it, I think that's the case in, in the pointing dog world as well as the retriever world or the, or the hound world for that matter is competition is what drives us to be more intelligent about our corrections um, better setups, more efficient setups and what we're doing, uh, better conditioning, you know, for the, for all our dogs, whether it's working dogs or sporting dogs. Um, it, it's the competitive side for me that, that, 
okay, my dog didn't do something well this weekend. Well, that won't happen next weekend. We'll make sure we cover those, fill in those holes this weekend and address whatever the weakness was in the dog. Could just be a bad day. Could be in a bad setup. But when we find something we see on a regular basis, you know, that you, you better train on it and you get to know judges and things of that nature. But it's that competitive nature of the hunt test that you don't get at the hunt test game that you do get at the field trial game. That's that's a very interesting point because I've kind of you just put in something into words that I've been trying to to think on for a while to where you get in the hunt test world, NAVDA world, uh, AKC hunt test, what have you, and and you're going against a standard. It's not that the standard is really lax, but you do get a lot of people that kind of figure out that standard. And they only train up to the bare minimum of that standard to whereas once you go into the competitive side of things and the trials, it's kind of like the the drive to push each other makes them create better or harder working dogs. And and so it's not, you know, I, I've been personally myself to where I'm fine going against a standard. I still want to do it at the highest level possible. But you do have some people that just... They're going to go do the bare minimum, and then they're not setting it up for realistic hunting situations. They're not trying to grow the dog's capability. They're not trying to grow his handlers, and it seems like there's a, you know, the going against a standard kind of gets you so far, and then it kind of tapers off to the level of enthusiasm or motivation, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I think the, the folks that excel in the in the dog games are the ones who love training. You know, everybody loves to go get a ribbon and it doesn't matter whether it's a field trial ribbon or, or hunt test ribbon. Everybody likes to get a ribbon at the end of the weekend. But the reality is that the, the folks that show up Monday through Friday out training their dogs are the ones that don't worry about a ribbon on, on the weekends. They're going to get the ribbons just simply because they've outworked everybody. And I think that's the the part that that early in my career, I didn't have that mentor that I went out and trained with and who taught me their program. I picked my program up through videos and things of that nature and, and, and made some, some mistakes along the way. But ultimately what I got to was, well, if I'm expected to do a hundred yard blind retrieve on a water blind, stopping whistle and hand signals, what if my dogs are used to doing 200 yard water blinds? What if I can teach that dog to, to be expecting to run something bigger and harder than they're going to see on a weekend basis? And, and so by doing that, I had a lot of people looking at me like I'd lost my mind running two, 300-yard stuff for a gun dog. All of a sudden, my dogs were easily getting their hunt test ribbons uh, because, you know, a 100, 150-yard blind was nothing – for a dog that was used to running that same concept, but building it out three, 350, 400 yards in some cases. And it, be, it became more about dog training for me. Um, and so, you know, Rankin's mom, you know, got her, got her hunt test title. And I think she failed one hunt test. And that was just, she decided that day, I'm just not going to do it. Rankin went eight for eight for her title. Um, then she went on to, to, you know, do an upland hunter title. And then she got a, uh, was qualified all age in the AKC field trial game. And turns out she, you know, she was more than competitive at the, at the super retriever series. And, you know, so, so, but it was one of those things that we built bigger into those young dogs from, from day one, we tried to push beyond what the standard was. And I think that's where a lot of folks fall short is, 
you're just training for the test. You're going to pass enough tests to qualify and get scores and get ribbons. If you want to go have fun every weekend and not feel the nerves, train, train bigger, train harder, train higher levels, have higher standards. Um, and I think the rest of it, you know, just it becomes easy to play those games. And I think that's what pushed me to the hunt test and or from the hunt test game to the field trial game um, was I was tired of getting the same ribbon everybody else was when they were squeaking by and I was passing, you know, with flying colors. It was, hey, let's let's go do something bigger where the challenge as a dog trainer is going to stay there. Yeah. And ultimately, we've talked about it a, a number of times on here is train hard, test easy. You know, whilst other people kind of limp into the test and they're they're just hoping that we pull it out, I want to show up to the test to where it's going to be shocking if we don't pull it out. Yeah, that's right. Or you're going to pick the dog from a training perspective. You see something goes, yeah, that would pass. But that long term, I'm looking this this isn't a sprint. This is a this is a journey we're on with a dog and giving up a weekend pass to solve an issue or to address an issue. Uh, or the, to not allow an issue to go, you know, um, you know, the dog that, that that's not giving me the cast on the water blind, and I'm and I'm thinking, okay, well, if I get if I get one cast, I'm going to get this ribbon. Um, okay, well, next weekend I'm going to have that same problem because they're going to decide at hunt test I don't get to do this. No bird, no here, and you know, you don't get your bird, which ultimately for all these dogs is their, you know, whatever their reward is, whether it's a you know pointing dog picking up a you know a an upland bird or a retriever picking up a duck or a bomb dog picking up a toy, not getting my toy, not getting my reward is a big deal. Yeah. And, and so, so I, I think that's one of the biggest things is not letting those dogs do things at a test that long-term you can't live with. Yeah. Nah, makes, makes a hundred percent sense. Bringing up the bomb dogs, let's jump into to that. What we came on here to talk about the AKC Patriotic Puppy Program. What is the Patriotic Puppy Program, and why is it important? Patriotic Puppy came from, um, I guess it's been four or five years now. TSA reached out to AKC, and big shortage uh, of American bred uh, working dogs or dogs available to become working dogs. And so TSA reached out to AKC and said, can your breeders help? And so AKC developed what's called the Detector Dog Task Force, which is uh, the big driving push with what AKC is doing related to uh, working dogs. And from that, one of the spinoffs was the Patriotic Puppy Program. The idea of Patriotic Puppy is that a breeder um, in the U.S. could keep a sporting breed dog, uh, raise it, uh, out of one of their litters, raise a puppy to be a future working dog. And the idea is, is develop that green dog, green meaning non-imprinted, not, no birds, no bombs, no narcotics, but a dog that just is built off a toy drive um, or, or food reward in some cases. And, and then have that dog available when it's roughly a year of age uh, for law enforcement, local, state, and federal law enforcement to take a look at that dog. Phase one of Patriotic Puppy was focused almost entirely on TSA. And, and let's face it, they've got a pretty high standard. Their testing is, is challenging. And for a new program, that's pretty pretty big hurdle to take home. I came in at the beginning of phase two. In phase two, we opened up the, the floor um, to also address the local and state needs for law enforcement. 
And so what we found is we had certain train or breeders that weren't dog trainers, but were learning to be dog trainers. And so that's kind of his program manager what in the subject matter expert. I've been working with these breeders from across the country to develop their skills to build a better dog. And so, so now, you know, by the end of phase two, we've got roughly 40 dogs that have come through the program and gone to work with law enforcement. Some are doing search and rescue. We've got a couple of cadaver dogs. Um, we've got uh, one working with the game wardens up in Maine. And, you know, and so it's a nice mixture of local and state law enforcement. And we've got one or two that have made it into the federal law enforcement programs with, with uh, TSA and, and um, uh, ATF. And so what I do really with Patriotic Puppy is, is I have a breeder that says, hey, I, I'm willing to buy a puppy or I'm willing to, to keep a puppy or a whole litter in some cases. We're going to raise those puppies. Well, then we track their, their training. We track their development. We give advice. But ultimately, we're trying to connect the, the breeder who's willing to be patriotic and raise that puppy with the end user law enforcement program that needs that puppy when they're a year old. And so that's ultimately what, what patriotic puppy is. Yeah. And so obviously you guys are feeling a need if, it, if it's at the airport with TSA or bomb dogs or search and rescue. And I've done, uh, I think I've done, I know for sure one search and rescue episode. I may have done two or three. Um, I can't remember all the episodes I've done by now. Uh, but there's obviously a, a need for this stuff. And, and like you said, so you, you have some Breeders, did you say that they're donating entire litters? So they're putting an entire litter on the ground and they're waiting to a year old to see to see if they can fit in a certain niche or or need across the country. Yeah. So 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 think about it. I've got a I've got a um, I've I've got everything as simple as a a current dog handler who is a is an experienced working dog handler who has a, a either a narcotics or explosive dog that she's handling. Um, she'll buy a puppy or two and she'll raise that puppy until it's ready to be to, to go to a, a finishing training program. Um, and I say finishing the ones that are going to imprint it on their specific odor and finish that dog and pair it with a hammer. So so. It's that simple for I've got somebody who's really good at raising dogs and, and developing dogs. And when they get to be a year old, she sells that dog and she starts over. I have others that kind of taken this as a as a potential business opportunity. And so they may keep a whole litter and what they're looking for special. They might keep special for their breeding program for the next round. Um, they might have a couple that that are really great hunters outdoors, uh, but aren't good inside. Our short hairs, for example, we, you know, we, uh, I've got a couple of breeders that are really good with, with short hairs and those short hairs that don't do well on slick floors, um, aren't necessarily going to be great in the airport. And so what they're looking for are their jobs or their conservation detection jobs are their jobs as hunters they're looking for to place the right dog with the right job. And so as these puppies develop, you get one that's a little, you know, a little fearful indoors, but is awesome outdoors. Okay, let's go ahead and make that dog a hunter. Move it on. We're still building drive. We're, you know, maybe they haven't introduced birds, but they're still building all the things in hunt and search and everything else in those dogs. And so 
yeah, you, you're talking about pretty pretty bold commitment to, to take a litter of seven and go, I think I'll keep the whole litter. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll sell a couple along the way. And then, you know, by the time they're a year old, we've got two or three, you know, stars that are that are ready to be seen by by law enforcement yeah so that that makes a lot of sense to me to where they have an entire litter on the ground and they're earmarking it hoping that the entire litter can make it to the to the program but as they kind of go along they realize that maybe it's not the right fit for this reason or you know it washes out for that reason and so then they just place them as they go along i was kind of picturing a breeder have you know eight dogs, eight puppies on the ground, and they have to wait a full year before they realize if it cuts the mustard or not. Uh, that, that's that's a pretty big commitment for some breeders. Well, it is. and uh, But at the same time, you're right. I mean, that, there's always there's always an out for a dog. There's always a job that you go, okay, I'm aiming for a federal law enforcement job. That's the one I really want as a, as a breeder slash trainer. Because let's face it, that's probably the biggest bang for their buck. That's the biggest return on their investment. But somewhere along the way, I've got, okay, well, I can't lose money. I know this one's not going to make this job. So we start looking at, okay, we got to make that left turn and go, all right, what's the other job? And so I think that's the, the biggest thing that, that we talk with these breeders on an on a almost daily basis is, hey, I'm having some issues. Well, shoot a video. Show me what you're doing. Let's talk about this as a program. Cause we've got other people that are having those same issues. So you're not, you're not training dogs in a vacuum with patriotic puppy. We've got folks all over the country that are doing the exact same thing, but I've also got mentors all over the country. You know, we've got relationships because of the, the role we play with AKC that I've got working dog industry professionals who are just as committed to helping patriotic puppy grow and be successful Number one, these might be the people who actually buy their dog. And so it, it's in, it, it actually works in their favor if they get to help somebody along when they're six, seven, eight months of age and go, well, how did that work out when they're nine months old? And all of a sudden they send them a video and it's like, got to have that dog. I want that dog. So, so it, it's a, it really is a big um, undertaking to, to keep developing new mentors and new breeders and and new relationships on the on the back end. So yeah. that's, you know, patriotic puppies pretty it, it's bigger than just, hey, why don't you keep a puppy and raise it? Call me in a year and tell me if it's ready or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that's where that's where a lot of people fall fall down is, you know, I don't know what to do next. Right. You know, like I said, from six from from birth to 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 eight weeks, these these breeders know way more than I do about dogs. Yeah. But they somewhere around six to eight months, if they've not trained one to, to finish dog level, you really don't you, you kind of lose your way or you're not. You know, that's that's where I really spend a lot of time talking with folks about, you know, how to what to do next when things don't go perfect. For sure. So, you know, when people talk about working dogs and especially in, in law enforcement, airports, what have you, their first instinct and first thought is more than likely going to be your German shepherds, your mouths, stuff like that that's not necessarily the case here. You know, you, you've mentioned German short hairs a few times, and I know that you guys work with labs. Are those predominantly the only two breeds that you work with, or are you guys open to other hunting dog breeds as well? We, we'll the, the biggest thing with the short hairs and the Labradors is the, uh, the folks that are the end user. That's what they, they tend to lean toward right now. And let's 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 go back to your Mal and Shepherd question because realistically, until ten years ago, 
when you said law enforcement working dog, it was a Malinois or was a shepherd and, you know, an occasional Labrador. Yeah. Um, but, but we're putting these dogs in environments where uh, we want people who are normal, but we don't want the person who's going into a football game to act weird because there's a policeman or a, a dog handler with a dog. Well, if I walk by a Malinois, I'm going to act differently or when that dog's up close to me than I am a black Labrador or German shorthair. So the sporting breeds already take the, the anxiety of the, just the general public that they're searching. It's going to bring that down. So now you can start using the, the behaviors that law enforcement are taught to look for. And, you know, when, when somebody's up to no good, there are certain things they do and how they behave when they see or, or encounter law enforcement. We want the average person to act normal, though. And so that's where the trend started with the sporting breeds. And, and for, for, you know, Labradors and, and short hairs, that's been a big push. Uh, even the dogs that are coming in from overseas, a lot of, a lot of importing of short hairs right now, which is not what we're trying to do with patriotic puppy. We think we got the genetics here to, to produce everything that, that law enforcement needs here in the States when it comes to sporting breeds. But we'll see, we'll see a wire hair. We'll see, um, gosh, I placed a, a chassis myself uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, that's a rare one. You know, it was when I dropped him off for evaluation, every trainer came into that kennel to see that dog because it was like I had dropped a unicorn off. <laughs> um, but, but you're going to see a little bit of variety. We, we do get phone calls with, with some of the unusual breeds and they know they can do it. And my question is always, okay, how are we going to convince the agency that's going to buy that dog that your breed is, is, excuse me, is just as good as the Labrador or the short hair. Um, and so on the federal contracts, they list the breeds you can use and goldens come up and, you know, short hairs and wire hairs and beaslas, you know, Labradors, all those things come up on the list and we'll look at other breeds with prior approval. It's usually how the wording goes. Okay. Um, and so, so there's always room for that sporting breed that is, that that meets all the standards, checks all the boxes and can make it on that federal contract. But usually it's you're going to have limitations on size. So uh, a Boykin or a Springer for certain contracts that are, you know, where they may be searching overhead in a, in a uh, airplane. Well, if they can't reach the overhead to sniff it, then they're then that breeds or in their minds, they don't think they can can sniff that effectively. Then they they limit those breeds. Um, and so, yeah, it's we do we focus on short hairs and Labradors because that's what most of the end users want, and that's obviously the, our breeders want to be able to sell those dogs, but but they will look at other breeds. And that's really fascinating that ultimately the the main driving force for maybe changing your typical working dog breed over to these dogs was the public's perception or anxiety around those dogs. And I can see that, you know, it's, you know, I'm comfortable around dogs, but you get around some of those working dogs, there's a, there's a different vibe coming off of some of those dogs. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say like, I'm scared of them, but it's just like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep my eye on you a little bit more than another dog. Have you guys noticed that any difference in terms of performance or functionality with them? Is it 
are they performing? Are the sporting dogs performing at a higher level with the use of nose and search compared to what a shepherd or mal did, or or is it really strictly just for public perception and and how public interact with the dogs? I I don't know that that the the work is is exceptionally better detection wise. You know, there's some folks out there trying to do research on what breeds sniff best and. And I think ultimately it depends on the job. Um, if you're, you know, if you're handling a dog, if you need a dog off leash, um, like we have with the Marine Corps contract, if you need a dog at 300 yards to clear an intersection or to go investigate something that looks out of place, um, the training we do with our, with our Labradors is is exactly what what you need for that. I mean, you, you point them down the road, stop them on a whistle, handle them all the way to the spot. They sniff around, nothing there. You call him back, you get back in the in the vehicle, and you drive through the intersection. But if I if I'm on the end of a six foot leash and I'm searching 300 cars, I just need the stamina. And I think that's where I don't know that it matters um, from a shepherd to a mile to a Labrador to a short hair. I just need a dog who wants to work every day. Yeah. And so if you got the the biggest thing we've run into with selection. Uh, uh, the folks who come from uh, uh, the traditional military or law enforcement background with the with the shepherds and mouths, they're very different breeds. They have very different tendencies, and so possession of a toy for a for what the herding breeds, the the shepherd and the mouth, is an indicator that that's a great dog. He's got he didn't want to give up his toy. I would do anything to get my toy, um, and I'm not giving it back to you once I get it. Um, our sporting breeds are exactly opposite. For hundreds of years, we've been breeding those dogs to do what? Go pick up my bird, bring it in with it, with it, you know, in, fit for the table, hand it to me, and go right back to work. And 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 I don't care about my toy. Once I give it to you, it's time for me to go find another one. Right. And so, so we're constantly having conversations and and I hate to say fighting battles, but but having uh discussions on a regular basis. Does physical possession of a toy matter for a Labrador Retriever or German Shorthair? Not on average. Well, so so if that doesn't matter, if the dog comes in, tosses your toy at him, and says, "Hey, let's go back to work." Okay, that's what I want as a as a working dog. If if I'm taking that same Labrador or Shepherd or Shorthair out in an upland situation, we're chasing pheasants. You know, the quicker you you find the first bird and I shoot it and you bring it back, the quicker we find a second bird. And so for me, that that same thought process applies to our working dogs is I don't need a physical possession. Um, and so that's that's been the that's really probably been the biggest difference is training has had to change a little bit. Um, the application, I could put uh, a Labrador in 60,000 people at an NFL football game and search the crowd and everybody's just going to stream by them. But I might take that same law enforcement who's dog with a uniformed officer and put him at the gate. And now I'm I'm using the physical presence of that mile of that shepherd to, to, as a deterrent as well. Yeah. So it's it's kind of created a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity with uh, with the sporting breeds. We just have to st- sometimes stop and think. Well, this this isn't a shepherd. This isn't a Malinois. Uh, but occasionally I get a. They're always funny. I always get a. An occasional handler that says, I want a Malinois in a Labrador body. <laughs> that 
one's usually the easiest one to place. <laughs> I can see that. So, I mean, you just described a couple scenarios there. Obviously, you know, the one with the with the lab having to go out 300 yards, take hand signals and search a specific area. Uh, that that one is probably doesn't even need more explanation as, as to how that correlates to how we hunt. I mean, you just described at the start of this, you know, typical duck hunter, you're going to train a blind at 300 yards and then you have a, a search them up or hunt them up command at, at the end of it. But it, at the end of all that, it comes down to use of notes, that search and that hunt them up command. It is besides the stamina and the drive to work and, and the drive to please and all that, with all that aside, is the most important factor of these dogs use of nose? It, it is. I, I, there's there's two, really there's three things that, that matter for these dogs. One is the obvious one with medical. They got to be physically capable of doing the job. And I think that's the the biggest thing that that matters for, for all our breeds and all our activities is, is a dog going to be able to, to to stay in training, stay healthy when he gets his job and be able to, to do it for seven, eight, 10 years of his life. So that's that box. We all got to check whether we're, we're, you know, gun dog guys or whether we're working dog guys, we got to start with a healthy dog. Medical is one of the biggest places where the working dogs get kicked out of programs. Um, the, the next biggest piece is you're right. Nose is, you know, I gotta be willing to use my nose. Um, and ignore things that, that don't matter to me. A, a working dog that's going to go sniff the trash can looking for pizza crust, <laughs> that's, you know, that will get me in just as much trouble um, as, not, you know, as not or ignoring the target odor that I am looking for because there's food there. And so, so nose is, you know, not only developing the nose, it's developing the nose and, and, the, and how to use the nose. That's, so that's one of the biggest things that, w- that we see. And then for the working dog, it's environmentals. And I, and I use the term environmentals. So put it in, in, a, in a hunting dog scenario, uh, environmentals, gunshot, afraid of loud noises, um, stairs. Will they go up and down wide open stairs that you can see through and you'd be 15, 20 feet off the ground? Um, you know, are you, are you comfortable walking down a busy a busy street where cars are coming back and forth, the dog, you know, noticing every little thing that's going on or like, yep, that was a car and kept walking. So I kind of need that dog. That's I hate to say bomb proof, but that's exactly what we're looking for is that bomb proof environmentals that I will go anywhere and hunt for, for my toy in any environment, inside, outside, dark places, loud places, uh, because we never know where that dog's going to end up with the job. Um, but I got to be willing to sniff everywhere I go and, 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 and almost be, I've got to be more obedient to my target odor than I am to my handler. And that's probably one of the biggest things that with the working dog folks is, is if I say here and you just smelled, smelled explosives, here doesn't matter to that dog anymore. He's got to work that out and go to that source and lock down. And I know I learned that lesson as a, as a gun dog guy, as a, as a teenager with a pointing dog. I kept telling the dog, I want you hunting this ditch. And she kept telling me there's a covey of quail out here in the bean field. And, and so I learned those lessons and I keep reminded those early days as a gun dog guy. I want the dog to honor his nose and go where the where that target odor is. And that's 
that's that nose. That's and that's the part. You got dogs that love to use the nose too much in a hunting environment. Well, that dog might make a great bomb dog. And ultimately, we we repeat that all the time. You trust the hunter with the longest nose because it never fails. We we get out there with our dogs, and this is this is hunting specifics like you just described. And we swear the birds are supposed to be over here. Meanwhile, you know the wind or or thermals, whatever is pulling that dog to the right, and we keep getting frustrated. Like I keep calling the dog over here, and it goes over there. You know, I, I've been in the field with people. I'm like, well go over where the dog's telling you to go. And then, you know, uh, very often there there's a bird or target over there. Um, so sticking with the three requirements, not to gloss over it because you did say it's the most important, like the most, uh, you know, one that'll just wash out dogs immediately is the medical. But that kind of, in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of falls into why you work with the breeders that you're working with, uh, ultimately the genetics. And, and obviously you're going to do different checks for each individual dog. But that's why you're going to be working with the lines and, and breeders that you're going to. I want to get into the use of nose as well as the environmentals because ultimately that's just kind of socialization for, for the most part. I want to talk about how do you ensure or try and hone in or develop the dog's use of nose and more specifically create that dog with the discrimination nose, the one that, like you said, can distinguish the difference between a pizza crust and in your case, a bomb, in my case, a pheasant. Yeah. So I think the, the, the one thing, this is probably where we differ um, between our, our training for our, um, our gun dogs our hunt test dogs or field trial dogs, especially we encourage them to use their eyes for marking. And so this is our retriever guys versus our, our, uh, and maybe our versatile guys understand we're throwing marks. We want them to run to the spot the bird hit the ground and and then set up the hunt, not hunt for 40 yards and then, you know, and then find the area. And so, you know, I do throw marks to build, you know, confidence and drive and things of that nature for my young dogs, but I don't care if they hunt. I want to throw stuff into cover and things of that nature to encourage them to do that. And so sometimes I'm developing the nose of, you know, hard to get to easy to find scenarios. So you gotta, you gotta climb over stuff and work through stuff. But once you get to that area, boom, there's that toy waiting for you. Um, I also might have easy to get to hard to find toy in a chest of drawers. Well, it's in one of the drawers. You can run right up to the chest of drawers, but now you got to find it. You know, it's there. You saw me toss it in there. And so now you got to go in, you got to go in there and you got to discriminate that, that, that find. Um, and so big amounts of, of odor become fairly easy for the dog to find. And I odor, you know, whatever that target is, whether it's, you know, uh, let's face it, a mallard duck smells, you and I can smell a mallard duck. That's easier to find <laughs> than, than a hen pheasant's going to be, you know, if we're training, uh, go throw that, that morning dove, into that same cover patch and you're going to have dogs that don't understand the discrimination of how, how to come up with that bird when they've been hunting these big stinky ducks in training. <laughs> yep. The same thing applies. If I, if I train with five pounds of, 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 I don't know, C4, well, if I train with five pounds of that and I don't drop down my odor threshold, then I'm not developing that dog's ability to find small amounts of odor. And so 
you know, if I take that that C4 and then I bury it, well, the, the signature of that C4, the, the odor that's actually getting to the surface is simulated a lot closer to a, a smaller amount of, of explosives. It's just not, it's not the same as five pounds laid on a table. It's five pounds buried under earth. And I'm getting some filtration of that, of that odor to the surface that the dog can smell. If the odor gets to the surface, the dog can smell it. I've got to, I've got to know he's going to, he's going to respond the, the right way every time when he, when he gets that odor. And so, so I think we, we as gun dog trainers, we don't think about that as well. I mean, I, I laugh looking back when they first came out with the small um, Avery true birds and the little, you know, buffle head and teal Dawkins and those kinds of things, you know, we hated them in training. Well, knowing what I know now as a, as a, as a, uh, as a working dog guy, okay, we just didn't train on them well enough. You know, well, they throw them in the cover. Well, if you hadn't taught your dog how to, how to, to, to find that target odor, that smaller amount of odor in those thick, you know, thick areas where they got to work a little harder and stay in there and detail that area as opposed to, hey, I run down there, I smell this big stinky bird and I make a left hand turn, run straight to it, pick it up. And so as dog trainers, we got to think about, well, why is my dog not, not good on doves? Well, it's because you've been throwing ducks every day. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, same thing. Why is my dog not good on bob white quail when I've been training on, on rooster pheasants every day? And so I think that's the part of, 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 you know, teaching, developing a nose that can discriminate multiple odors as target odors. Because, you know, a working dog may get seven, eight, 10, 15 odors. Um, that they're targeting if they're an explosive dog. Yeah. And I, I want to get your take to expand on that a little bit more. Uh, this is more hunting dog related, obviously, but I get a lot of people reaching out, especially new people. You know, there's bumpers that have these uh, scent strips on them to where people can, you know, artificially put put scent on them and make the bumper smell, uh, spell, just smell it's easier for a dog to find ultimately in a field. Right. And so when they ask like, well, you know, what kind of scent do you use? And I, and I tell them no, no scent. I don't, I don't use scent at all. And they're like, well, you know, how's the dog supposed to find it? In my eyes, I'm trying to create that dog that can pick up on the smallest amount of scent as possible. And like what you're talking about, when you develop that dog that can discriminate based on the smallest amount of odors and differences, to me, that's when you get the dog to where you don't have to worry about if you take your versatile dog hunting for a new bird species. You hear all the time, like, well, the dog doesn't know what a sharp-tailed grouse smells like. It's only been on pheasant or pick your two birds or whatever. But if right. you have the dog that is trained to pick up on the smallest amount of scent change, they should transfer over to another species without too big of a jump. And so in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, when you're utilizing artificial scent on bumpers 24-7, not to say that there's not a specific purpose for a specific dog or situation, but on average, if you're always using scent strips and, and artificial scent, you're really kind of create, you're making it too easy on the dog, in my opinion. Yeah, so I a couple ways I can I can respond to this one. Um, the 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 first one is is pretty obvious. Um, after I add it from a working dog side, the hardest odor to establish is the first one because I'm I'm 
And not only am I introducing the odor and imprinting on that one odor, I'm also developing their final response. And in most cases, that's a sit response. They smell the odor, they sit, they get, they get paid with their toy. Um, and so, um, so I build and I shape all those behaviors to find the odor, source the odor, sit, toy comes in, you get paid. We move the odor. And, and so it's, a, it's all repetition at that point. I can add the second odor in less than a day. Okay. Because I don't have to shape all the behaviors. It's just, hey, here's the new odor, pay on sniff. And we're gonna add that, we're we're gonna we're gonna build that out to a final response. And I can usually add add that odor um again within a day, maybe two. But by the time I get to odor six, they know the game. Hey, this is a new odor, we got it. Anytime I smell this. And then it's we just build off that with repetition. Right. So for the but I'm using live explosives. The 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 company I work first worked for, that Marine Corps contract, um when they're imprinting on the stuff that the that the bad guys are using around the world right now, they're yeah, we imprint on all the, the traditional stuff, but they also imprint on homemade explosives. They imprint on the real homemade explosives. They have a chemist who builds that and they train on it once a month or every couple of months. And and we we build on the real stuff because that's the stuff we're gonna we're gonna be looking for. Right. And so that's kind of where I'm at going back to you, these scents and these scent strips and things of that nature. We're picking up birds. If I'm doing drill work, I'm using my bumpers and, and toys, even, you know, especially with the, with the bomb dogs, because that's how they get paid is with their toy. But all my retrievers, my drills and things of that nature, where I'm teaching and we're doing lots of repetition, well, I, I could put 20 birds out to go do, you know, these, these blind running drills or things of that nature, we're going to use bumpers, but I don't put any odor on those. There's enough scent from my handling and dog saliva and everything else that there's plenty of odor down there. I'm teaching them the pattern or how to respond or line up or, you know, stop on a whistle and take a cast. We do all that with, with bumpers without any odor whatsoever. But when I'm going out and throwing marks that I want to see them hunting the cover and, 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 and source the bird and pick it up, I'm throwing birds. Doing the real stuff. And I think if you do that, uh, the more you do that, the the easier that transition is to the next dog, the next bird, the next kind of bird. Um, and, you know, I throw a throw a hen pheasant in training one day, and I expect them to find it the next day. If they if if there was any struggle, the the next day I expect them to find that that pheasant. And I then we build up the I can throw a a, a, a mallard on one bird and a, and a pheasant on another retrieve and expect them to not even think twice. There's my bird, pick it up, come on back with it. And so I, I historically, I, I'm never really worried about taking dogs um, that have never hunted pheasant in South Dakota. It never crossed my mind that I was going to have an issue with them finding pheasant. And, oh, then we threw in a, a quick hunt for sharp tails in the, in the CRP and boom, they flush, you know, they flush a, a, a sharp tail. I kill it. They go pick it up, and deliver it to hand. We go back to hunt. They don't care. There's birds out there. Right. And, you know, so I, I think that's for me. I, I just don't think the it, I don't think it's necessary to be putting all these scent strips and everything else 
unless you're going to go out and lay like a, a trail and you don't have a source for birds. Yes. You're going to go out and teach something um, that you, you, you physically don't have. Okay. You don't have a bird freezer. I got two. <laughs> yeah. That, that's what dog trainers do. We hoard our birds that, that, that we're, that we're trading and we wear them out. Well, not everybody has the ability to do that. And right. so, so, but at the same time, I think the more you use birds, the real thing, no matter if it's a working dog or not, the more you use the real thing, the, the, the better the dog's going to be at, at his job. Absolutely. And, you know, that you just sparked a, a whole bunch of different examples and, and, and stuff I might expand on in the outro of this episode, but I'm not going to beat this dead horse with you. I, <laughs> I, I, I want to keep going because, you know, obviously the, the development of the nose, as, as we just covered, is, is probably the most important thing outside of the medical thing. When do you start or, or the cooperation level? with with the dog and the handling and all that how often are you guys actually using that with these dogs or is it just kind of the the occasional thing i guess what i'm asking is that lab that you talked about that's 300 yards away uh that's supposed to cover that intersection is that dog also trained to work within you know six yards of you the whole time or do you have a specific dog for a specific task that that contract was was very specific to um, to the war we were in in Afghanistan, and so having a dog that would would basically hunt like a, a pheasant hunting dog in gun range on a foot patrol um, w- was expected. And then that at the same time, that foot patrol could see something and launch a dog out hundred yards, three hundred yards, whatever. And and the idea was standoff. If we can if we can interrogate something at a distance, then that then then the handlers are safe. They're out of the blast cone, and so it 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 was specific to that environment where the roadside IEDs you know were were prevalent over there. And so we took you know what the enemy was doing and said, hey, we got a dog. We've got a training technique. So most of those dogs were built field trial competitors or hunt test competitors before they ever switched gears and came into the bomb dog world. And so we were able to transition those dogs off of birds and, and build them into, to, to being, you know, willing to hunt at six feet because the first thing you did is searched around the car. You riding in something before you got out, you kicked the dog out and he'd zero around the car. Yeah. Okay. We, it's all pattern. Right. It's like patterning up a dog. You're gonna you gotta teach that. Well, you pattern that same deal. You put a dog, he's gotta he's gonna search the car or, or right around the car, and then you start to build that out. Or you call him in, line him up and, and again, communication, dead bird back, and they take off. Yeah. And for any of the listeners that are wondering why why the nose is so important in this, the IEDs, that stands for improvised explosive device, they are made to look like anything and everything from trash to, you know, hidden behind posters, what have you, you can't mark these objects and these bombs based on eyesight alone. The, the people that take the time to, to create these bombs, they, they're really good at what they do oftentimes. And they can, you, you have to have something like a dog's nose to distinguish the difference between this. And that's why it's so important. Like you, you alluded to earlier, you can't have a dog that's just used to d- taking marks or using its eyesight. It has to be able to pick up on those organic compounds that create the bomb and the gunpowder or, or what have you. 
is it getting tougher or these bomb makers are they getting better at hiding the scent for these dogs you know i think that's the one thing that that always we always talk about you know everything we know about a dog and you know we can measure a dog's nose to to so many parts per million and the the reality and this is just is pure speculation and pure opinion um i don't think we've scratched the surface on what these dogs can do and so if that odor is there and that odor is available to the dog um they're going to find it and and you know whether you hide it in coffee or you hide it in tobacco or, you know, it, they try a lot of different things. I always, it, it was always a, a laugh when I was deployed. If they worked as hard at developing the country as they did it, it, it blowed things up, man, Afghanistan would have been, you know, a, 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 a international, you know, competitor when it came to their economy and everything else, because <laughs> yeah. Some of the elaborate things that you, they'd come up with, you, you just it blow your mind. You know, you'd see a car and, you know, it looks like a normal car and the wiring turns out was debt cord, you know, instead of wiring, you know, the electrical system of the car had been replaced it. So it looked normal. And so that's the part I could fool your eyes. I could fool a human's eyes and make it look good. But gosh, it's almost impossible to fool that dog's nose. And, and I think that's the, the, the real piece for me that was, was incredible, was watching these dogs um, and seeing what the odor would do. Uh, you know, we went out training one day and, and had a, arguably some of the best working dogs slash retriever trainers all in the, in the field together. Big setup we've got, we've got this, you know, this, this thing set up in the road and none of the dogs were alerting on, on right over top of the, the odor they were all alerting 20 feet to the left in the ditch hmm. and we beat this thing up all day long you know that's what dog trainers do dogs aren't doing what we expect them to do so we you know we sat there for for half a day just wow and why is this dog hitting it over here well it was a clay-based road with a sand topping there was a scene that odor could travel sideways on and so all of a sudden, you either had to hit it right on top. You had about a six-inch circle that you could actually smell it, or you'd hit it 20 feet away. Well, you know, some people would say, well, 20 feet away is close enough. But if I'm sending an EOD guy back in there to, to do away with, with this explosive, 20 feet may not be close enough because they're going to search for the dog alert and, okay, there's nothing here. There's no visual cue whatsoever. And that's why we teach them to, to go to source. But gosh, thinking about why dogs do what they do and where the odor is going, um, it, you know, it's it's one of those. It's, again, it drives you back as a dog trainer. You start think trying to outthink what the odor is going to do, what's my dog going to do, and and it and it pushes you to to better understand sending conditions and things of that nature. Things we take for granted as gun dog guys. Oh, he's he's you know, we got a great sending conditions today. Well. How are you going to hunt the field? Wind's blowing from a certain direction. Are you going to you know, hunt downwind? Does that favor your dog? Is, is you know, because you need him to, to run a little bigger? Um, or, you know, do we need to get that wind, you know, good crosswind? I mean, there's so much of these things that that we schooled all these dog handlers on that some of those same lessons apply to our gun dog folks that are, that are you know, you just if you got an option, are you going to hunt this field? From the left left side to the right, are you going to go to the right side to the left, depending on the wind? 
Yeah, and and you just open a can of worms there because you t- you talk you bring up that discussion with hunters, and you'll have half the people saying, "Oh, you got to hunt it left to right," and then the other people saying, "Nope, right to left." Then you get out there, and the wind shifts, and everybody's wrong, and you're kicking yourself. And uh, it, it's the it, it's the tried and true just tailgate hunter just discussion to where there's no right or wrong answer, and that's ultimately why the more I mean, obviously, I'm not gonna directly go with the wind out of favor, uh, if I can help it. But for the most part, I just kind of put my dogs down and I've kind of realized these dogs know how to use that nose a heck of a lot better than I can direct that nose. They're going to put themselves in the favor of the wind to where they can smell the best anyway. I don't really have to set the hunt up to where they can smell better. Is that kind of what you guys do with these dogs to where you kind of train them up to a certain level and then you trust them? Because like you said, it's we have such an elementary understanding of how these dogs' noses work that it, it, it's kind of baffling to me how we still all the time you just talked about it we still think we can interject ourselves and direct these dogs better than they can do it yeah we, we always joke in the working dog side which 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 is the the smarter end of the leash <laughs> and uh and sometimes we have to remind ourselves that 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 the dog can smell things we will never smell and so uh, there, there's got to be a level of trust there there's also got to be a level of being able to read what the dog is telling you and I think that's what separates a great dog handler um, versus a you know a, a, a novice. Um, the great dog handler is going to see things. It's going to see that that hesitation when it's running downwind of a bird, and and didn't quite trust itself that it was that there was something there. Well, okay, let's call him back in and give him a chance to explore that area, or let's just wait him out. Let's yeah. you know let him work back in, and and yeah, okay, if he checks that out, and moves on. Okay, there's nothing there. Um, first time I ever saw a truck, uh, a truck dog, um, quail hunt here in North Carolina, uh, they dropped this dog on an edge and it's all he is. He's an edge running dog. And, and so the, the dog that, that I watched this dog go out and he's, he, he, twice he works this area, won't go in the woods cause he's an edge dog. And so, you know, gets birdie, doesn't point. All right. And he moves on. Well, when they picked him up at the end of the edge, they took two foot hunting dogs and they walked straight to that area, kicked those two dogs loose. Well, there's a covey of birds about 45 yards in the woods. And so he, he became a locator, but the, 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 the guy who's watching him, okay, he didn't point anything, but he saw enough to go, that covey's not made it to the field today. Yeah. They're, they're in the woods right now. And so he launches down there on foot and boom, there's, there's a nice covey of birds. And so I think that that same process happens, especially where the working dog guys, we call it change of behavior. Can you read that change of behavior? Did you see that change of behavior? And so when that dog, all of a sudden tail starts cracking, all right, it's, it hits that scent cone and it's lost it. Wind shifted right as he hit it. Okay. There's something there. Well, I've got to read what that dog's telling me or what he told me, figure out what's changed and help put him in that, that same situation. And I think the same thing applies with the, you know, with the, in, in the pointing dog world, rooster pheasant that's run, running on you. You know, that's, that's always one of those things. All right. Now I got a scent that just took off through the field and the young dog that doesn't know how to interpret everything, all the things that are, that are being, you know, told to it in the environment. 
it's never going to catch up with that rooster feather. Eventually may learn how to do that. That's a, that's that experienced dog or that special dog that goes, Hey, that, that odor's getting, getting lighter every, every second I wait, maybe I need to speed up on this thing, you know, cut him off, whatever. And, and we see the same thing in, in, in the, what's called the, a vapor wake or a person born ID detection dog. These are the dogs that you're going to see at the airport or football games that are searching large crowds. And their job is to trail that odor through a crowd of people. So the exact same thing for the working dog applies to that, that cripple that's getting away or that rooster pheasant that's running on. They've got to find their target odor and it's still moving. And so it's not just, Hey, you've got it. Well, no, I don't smell it now. No, you've got it. You know, cause we're searching <laughs> people and you go from, all right, from one person to the next person. And, and they've got to learn to use that nose to discriminate and to stay with that, that moving target. I saw it in person, uh, was, was running a big operation at Super Bowl a few years ago. And, and we were training in that, in the environment. It was really to keep the dog sharp. You know, if, if you go 10 days and, you know, they start going through the motions if they're not get, hitting their odor on a regular basis. And let's face it, in, in, a, in an environment like that, you don't want them hitting their odor <laughs> on a regular basis like you do in a hunting environment. Right. We'll bring training aids in and, and, and set up scenarios just to keep them excited about what they're doing every day. And so I'm videotaping. I've got a, a, a GoPro on the back of my backpack, and I'm just walking through a crowd. They don't know I'm there. And so I go walking through, and I looked at the videotape. It's like, oh, she missed me. I'll, I'll just make another pass. So I kept walking. All of a sudden, I hear something going, attack it, attack it, attack it, attack it, attack it. I look back down at the phone, which I'm monitoring, you know, the video camera with, and I feel a nose hit the backpack. And when you go back and look at the video, the moment it, it hit the scent cone of that odor, it immediately went to, all right, there's something here. And it went person to person to person and excluded them. And then got in the trail and took off. Wow. Well, a gun dog that can do that of, hey, there's bird scent right here, but the strongest scent is leaving and I got to go find that. So, so it's, it's, it's amazing how, how, how much we, we learn from our sporting dogs and how we're applying that into our working dog side yeah. of things. And that's what's developed some of these, these new capabilities for working dogs. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it never ceases to amaze me whether it's it's a dog in the field or, or what what you guys are doing when you see a dog that's just well dressed and and well trained in, in these regards. Tracking dogs, especially, I, I love watching a good tracking dog. Uh, but also, you mentioned something that's very important, especially for the average handler. That change of behavior, the cobs, and I, I try and tell everybody that's just starting out, maybe they're on their first dog. You have to learn that body language by that dog before you worry about, you know, the methods and all that stuff. It's like, obviously, pay attention, all that, be, be learning. But if you can't start reading your dog and the change of behavior is the easiest one and it can be very minute, you know, it can be very subtle or it can be extremely uh extremely different you know a pointing dog running 90 miles an hour slams on point obviously that's a change of behavior that you can call out but the ones that just pick up on that subtlety to where just like oh that that ear dropped back and it's just like they they glance over there that's enough to tell somebody like hey we need, we need to go in that direction that the teamwork you want the well-trained dog but the handler also plays a part to where 
we just said get out of the way of the dog trust the hunter with the longest nose but you also have to be paying attention in case you do need to circle back or spend more time and give the dog an extra chance to to figure out the puzzle there's no doubt i mean that's it, it we seems like we always started with some of our novice handlers uh in, in our handler courses with just call out the change of behavior you're not even handling the dog. Just observe the dog and 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 acknowledge when you've seen something different, you know. And it was sometimes it was a you know a little quick turn of the head. Hey, you know, uh, it wasn't a dog's running wide open. You know, the ones that slam on the brakes and go, oh, I smelled my my reward. Well, that's the easy one. It's those subtle ones that that you know when again when we start dropping down in the amount of odor, um, it's the difference between a single versus a covey. You know, if you're if you're if you're hunting, you know, upland birds. And so so I think the the quicker you understand your dog's change of behavior, because they're all a little different. Uh, but 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 once you start acknowledging, OK, this is when he's in odor, when that tail starts cracking, that's oh, boy, he, he's excited, <laughs> you know. Um, but when he's on a cripple oh, that, you know, when the, the tail starts cracking, but then it does something different when he's when he's getting ready to start chasing down this cripple. And, uh, you know, that's, but you're right. You gotta just, that, that comes from time with that dog, watching that dog work. And, and it's, it's your training time, it's your hunting time, but acknowledging and looking for that change of behavior, um, sure stacks the odds of killing that bird when, when it comes up in a, in an upland situation, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And Stacy, I mean, we didn't even get to touch on, on the environmentals and, and the socialization. We might have to circle back with you at some point and, uh, and, and start unraveling that one. But at the end of the day, I, I love talking to trainers such as yourself to where you obviously have experience in, in both worlds, but at the end of the day, it's really not both worlds. Either way, the dog is hunting for something, and it's just how you direct them, how they're trained, and, and the expectations to where at the end of the day, we're hunting birds over here, and you're just hunting bombs. I mean, ultimately, you know, it's like pick whatever your target is, and so that's why I love exploring and, and talking to, to guys with different perspectives because I guarantee you, you have learned a lot of different tips and tricks that I can apply in my side of things that I'm not going to get by just staying within my own echo chamber. And so I, I love kind of exploring and, and I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your your wisdom and experience in, in this. And for, for those that uh, might be interested in kind of getting involved in the program, or maybe they're a breeder that wanna, wants to reach out and figure out how can they get their puppies in, in the system, you know, where can they go? Where can they reach you and, and check all the resources out? Yeah, so, so Patriotic Puppy Programs uh, is, is available through AKC's website. Um, they can, can reach out through, through that. Um, there's a, a form to sign up and, and we'll send you the last, all the webinars and things that, that we do as part of AKC. So there's, there's a lot of information that's already been done, you know, that's, that's, that's literally given to them free when they sign up, they can reach out directly to me. It's, it's, it's stacy.west at akc.org. That's my email. And, you know, just that's what I do. I mean, I sit around and talk dogs with people on a on an almost daily basis, and so um, you know, being able to reach out to uh, you know through AKC, through Patriotic Puppy, or or directly to me, I that's that's just what what we do as part of the AKC is is work with dog breeders and trainers uh, in lots of different breeds, 
And so it's uh, be more than happy to answer any questions that anybody's got. And again, we're looking for, for folks that are, that are interested in raising a puppy. I can, we've talked the economy economics of, of raising that puppy, what's going to cost, what you can sell that dog for, um, you know, and it, like everything else in that depends on what you put into it versus what you're going to get out of it. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of opportunities there, but, uh, a lot of good things coming through patriotic puppy and and if you're a sporting dog guy or gal i guarantee you that that you know a lot more about about training a, a detection dog than you think you do yeah well i appreciate that again i enjoyed the conversation and, and your time this morning to come on and, and talk to us lowly hunting dog guys and uh you know i look forward to the next time maybe we can circle back and touch on some of the stuff that we kind of glossed over that sounds great This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stacy West of AKC. Stuff like this is uh, always a good reminder for somebody like me to where, you know, what we do with these bird dogs and, and hunting birds and training and doing tests and trials and all that, it's supposed to be fun. There are dogs out there and programs and people such as Stacy that, uh, that have to take this a little more serious. The dogs have an actual serious job where some people's lives actually depend on it. And so, uh, you know, when you have dogs that have to work at that level compared to what we do and what we choose to do and have fun, I always like uh, talking to guys like Stacy and, and adding that reminder or that perspective that what we're supposed to be doing is supposed to be fun. And, um, you know, somebody like me, I get I get two in the weeds. I get a little serious, too serious sometimes out there. And so talking to people like this and, and really reminding myself that there are actually dogs out there whose main job and drive is to find something such as bombs that's going to save somebody's life down the road and the inherent risk that they put themselves in the handlers the trainers and the dogs themselves to uh to do that job it's just i don't know it, it, it's a it's a really good reminder and that's why i like stepping out of the bird dog world and talking to people about subjects such as this and it's not like it's it's fruitless you know it's when you listen to people like this you can pick up on a lot of things especially like in this episode for example uh, creating the discriminating nose that's something that in our training we can directly apply to what we're trying to do and it's going to help us in the long run but anyway it, it, i hope you guys enjoyed it um again it's outside the bird dog world we're going to get back to the bird dog world pretty heavy here in the few weeks so uh hope you're enjoying these few weeks of just kind of uh, kind of more off the beaten road topics or guests, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a good refresher, but anyway, I'm actually out here on the road. I'm down in Arizona wrapping up a quail, uh, hunting trip. So I'm not going to keep you guys too long this week. Cause I'm going to go out there. I got a few more walks. It's our last day. So I'm going to go make it count and hopefully put some more birds in the bag. So with all that being said, uh, normal housekeeping, if you enjoy this podcast, you get any value of it, please consider joining Patreon, patreon.com forward slash gundogget yourself. 
Uh, we have a lot of uh, exclusive content going up there. I'm starting to do some new features such as the extended outro, which is not going to be this week because I am on uh, on vacation, essentially, on a hunting trip with my family and friends and dogs. So I'm going to go do that. But I'll be back next week for the Patreon extended outro. And then uh, the Rough Grouse video that I did with Nick Larson, that's up there if you're interested in that. And that's going to be up there exclusive to Patreon just for a couple more weeks. It's going to be going live to everybody else here soon. So if you're interested in that, by all means, go check that out right now. And uh, yeah, let's see here. I think I'm forgetting something. Oh, I got a couple pieces of feedback from listeners from an episode a few weeks ago on the travel episode, episode 171. Thought that you guys might enjoy this. Eric O'Brien reached out and he suggested using a buddy cake pan, a cake pan upside down for the water dish on a steak. So you essentially knock out the center. Some cake pans come without the center and it goes just right over the steak in the ground. And then you have a water bowl that the dog cannot tip over. So that's that's something that I've seen utilized. I've used it myself a couple times uh, when it's available. Someone else has that. Uh, so that's a good reminder. And then another guy, Troy Stark, reached out and he advised separating feed and supplements into individual servings in Ziploc bags. It's quick, easy, and error-free, especially if you have someone else feeding your dog, which anybody that's been in a hunting camp knows all too well that there are some evenings or feedings that you're busy and a buddy just kind of takes up the slack and and helps feed your dog so if you have it kind of dress right dress with individual serving sizes it makes it super easy and you don't have to worry about the wrong serving size or, or wrong food or wrong supplements wrong medicine whatever so there's two good pieces of feedback from the travel episode if you guys are listening to any of our episodes and you have feedback or addition or additions or uh, corrections, by all means, reach out to us at gundogityourself at gmail.com or social media, Facebook, Instagram, under gundogityourself. Let us know. Uh, yeah, with that being said, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to go hit the field or the desert, whatever you want to call it. See if we can go find some more quail before we get out of here. Just wanted to say thanks as always for hitting download and play. It means the world to us. And we'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. 
I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.